Good morning, everyone. So, any questions this morning? Um, I was thinking yesterday, um, like in a lot of Ishkan temples, they sing like the Nishinga prayers. And, and a few years ago, a friend of mine, he, he told me that, that, it, that, at least I understood from him, that we should, you know, I find it hard to say, like, like not trying to make any offenses. But he said that Nishinga was like in a, in a lower mood, and that was not like the mood we were trying to attain. Like that, that by singing Nishinga prayers, wasn't like the highest mood we we're, we're reaching for. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what your comment is on that, if that's the right perspective, or how should how should we see the Nishinga avatar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good question. Actually, our deity is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Gornatananda, Radha Govinda, Krishna Balaram, something like that, Gorgadadhar. And Krishna is the source of all avatars. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was that same Krishna. So, all the different avatars, we see them in relation to Krishna. Krishna expressing himself in different ways and in relation to different devotees. So we never have any disrespect for them whatsoever. All of these uh, avatars, they're all one in tattva, means they're all God. But when we look at them from another angle of vision, rather than from the angle of vision of tattva, philosophy, from the angle of feeling, rasa-vichar, and consideration of rasa, then we see some difference. And it's on the basis of that way of looking at the Absolute that Rupa Goswami has reached the wonderful conclusion that Krishna is the um, fountainhead of all incarnations, avutari, rasaraj. So the distance between the different avatars or different lokas within Vaikuntha Loka is not miles, but rasa, feeling. And Krishna is the source of all potential for feeling or aesthetic rapture, rasananda. So by this type of analysis, he's arrived at this conclusion. Rupa Goswami was the first to, to, to do this. He based his conclusions or his analysis on a statement from the Shruti, means the Upanishads. Previous acharyas like Madhva and uh, Ramanuja and so forth, who were Vaishnava charges, and they opposed the uh, monism of Shankar, they did so by basing their analysis of reality and understanding of reality, their metaphysic, uh, by drawing from the Shruti, from the Upanishads. This is considered primary source material in terms of revealed scripture. So Rupa Goswami did the same thing, but he took one statement out of the Taitre Upanishad that describes that, that really, if you analyze it closely, it describes that that uh, um, 
that while Brahman is the support of everything, Rasa is the support of Brahman. Raso, uh, what is it? Raso Vaisaha. Hmm? Which, which Rupa Goswami concluded from that, that Rasa is Bhagwan hmm? and he's the support of Brahman. And Rasa here means, in full sense, Krishna, Rasa Raj. So he drew this from the Upanishads, it's a well-known statement, and then he made his whole explanation of the Absolute by taking that statement from the Shruti, from the Upanishads, and then drawing from the world the secular theory of drama and poetry in India, aesthetics, which is um, a secular rasa theory, analyzing different sentiments. Just like in drama, the the purpose of the drama is to draw out different feelings, emotions, that the audience can feel those emotions when the actors are enacting the drama. And certain emotions have the power to be dominant, and, and predominate. Certain emotions are auxiliary and they augment dominant emotions and so on and so forth. So this is rasa theory. Uh, it's this theory of aesthetics in drama and poetry and art in India. It's secular. But Rupa Goswami said, the real theory of rasa comes from the Upanishad, which is not secular, but religious and spiritual. And here's the statement, rasa Saha. we take this, and then I'm going to explain the ramifications of that, what that means, by through, through the language of secular um, rasa theory. And so he explained the whole nature of Krishna as Rasaraj and what is the uh, how uh, different constituents of rasa and all these things in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and uh, and uh, and and Ujjwal uh, Nilmani, his, his, two of his principal books. So this, from this analysis, he made a wonderful uh, uh, presentation of uh, Gaudiya Vedanta and, uh, and uh, established this, the supremacy of, of Krishna. And later on, it, he wrote um, Lagu Bhagavatamrita, which also explains all the different avatars and how they all relate to Krishna. So, we are devotees of Krishna. So we will see the different avatars in relation to Krishna. We'll see, oh, Krishna is doing this in that form with those devotees. And we won't see the avatar independently of Krishna. We won't worship the avatar independently of making that connection. Whereas... Some devotees will worship Narasimha, for example, or Ram, Ramchandra, and do so independently of the understanding that they are avatars of Krishna, descents of the avatari. So, it's a fine to worship Narasimha, but if we want to cultivate our relationship 
with Krishna, our Ishtadevata, or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then we should worship Nishingha, for example, or other avatars, in relation to that. This is the idea. So, um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he's our deity, he chanted those prayers. You mean Namaste, Narasimha. In Jagannath Puri, he chanted those prayers when he saw the Nishingha deity. At the, which is situated one place in the temple. Jiva Goswami had a deity of Narasimha also. It was established in, um, along with his Radhadamadar deities now in Jaipur. Narasimha Dev was the exclusive deity, the Ishtadevata, the principal deity of Sridhar Swami, the famous ancient commentator on Srimad Bhagavatam, who Chaitanya Mahaprabhu respected so much. So, um, Narasimha Dev manifested in the Sankirtan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in Navadweep to chastise the Kazi who had broken the drum and tried to <coughs> stop the Sankirtan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Bhaktivinoda Thakur, from his house in Godrum, after envisioning the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu from there, and with the help of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur establishing a presence there for the sake of building a temple, later envisioned every morning during the Brahma Mohorta some kind of a, a cloud of like dust moving down the road and stopping in that area. He thought about it for some time and then he came to the uh, revelation that uh, Narahari Narasimhadev was attending the Mongol Arctic of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu every morning. When uh, Narasimhadev killed Ranyakasipu, and when he left the world, then he flew over Navadweep and stopped there for a little while at Narasimhapoli. Uh, that's in Navadweep, and the devotees go there always annually on pilgrimage when they do the Parakrama going around Navadweep Dam during the time of Gaur Purnima. So Nisringadev has some involvement in Gaurlila through the ways in which I'm, I'm mentioning. There may be others also. There are others actually. I gave a talk on this once at some length, Nishinga Chaturdasi one year. You can get a, the CD of that, all the ways in which Nishingadeva is involved in Gorlila. So, we can pray to Nishingadeva, but we should try to do that with these things in mind. Prabhupada, how did Prabhupada institute the prayers of uh, Nishingadeva in ISKCON? Devotees were chanting in New York on the streets, in Sankirtan, and people were harassing them, and sometimes it was dangerous. New York can be a dangerous place on the streets at times. And so he told them that to protect the Sankirtan, then they could invoke these prayers, that the Sankirtan would go on nicely. Not as much as to protect themselves, but to protect the Sankirtan, it will go on nicely. Uh, so, he himself then instituted these Nishinga prayers in relation to uh, Nishinga Dev's uh, uh, role of serving in Sankirtan. So this is the way these types of prayers should be thought of. Otherwise, the goal of 
Krishna consciousness not to become a devotee of Narsingadev. And sometimes we find this happening. Devotees kind of have this blurred idea of Vaishnavism and they become attracted to Nisringadev because they like to fight or something like that and uh, for different reasons or, or just that he's cool, you know, really like, you know, ghastly or whatever and, and it'll shock people. So I'll have a deity of Nisringadev and uh, something like that. So these are like mental reasons for worshipping noticing her. And then they take it up and they learn the mantras and, and whatnot. And, uh, and, um, and, and this is not what we're about. Um, so perhaps because the devotee that you're speaking of had seen the kind of abuse of that principle and devotees and in ISKCON, for example, because I've seen it in ISKCON, getting into uh, the Shringadev in a, in, in a way that, um, that uh, displaced Krishna, Radha Krishna, which would have sent them at best to Vaikuntha, but because it was only really a mental thing, it wouldn't take them anywhere into, uh, into the Paravyom Vaikuntha. The devotee who told that to you was reacting to that. I can conjecture. However, the reaction is as bad or worse itself because it, it, um, at least in the way in which you've related it, and I've heard this kind of thing too, so I speak from my own experience, it turns into a deprecation of uh, Mr. Ingedev. He's lower deity. Uh, we cannot speak like that about God, lower, higher. We we are more charmed by Krishna. Krishna is this is this is Abhutari, That's a fact. But that that lower, we're not interested in him type of fellow. Is also Krishna, manifestation of Krishna. Now, in saying that, I must also mention to you, if in a moment of bhava ecstasy of love for for Krishna. <coughs> a great Rasik devotee says, who cares for Nasringa? Vamana. What have they done for the world? Like Prabhupada Saraswati has written like this. That's another thing. That's very charming. They can talk like that to Krishna. But if Practicing devotees speak like this. It may be some, there may be some aparad. They may in their mind be developing a, a, an offensive attitude and offend Bhagwan in one of his uh, important uh, forms. And especially Narahari, Narsinga, who's participated so much in, in Gorlila in so many ways. So the answer is, yes, you can invoke the prayers of Nishinga, but keep these kind of things in mind. We can pray to Nishinga Dev, Oh, Bhagavan Narasimha, you are the deity of Sridhar Swami, the ancient commentator of Simad Bhagavatam, who Chaitanya Mahaprabhu so much appreciated. Please reveal in my heart all the secrets of Srimad Bhagavatam that are so dear to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. It was said about Sridhar Swami's commentary 
that it was written in Banaras, which is a center for Mayavad and Gyan. But the commentary was full of bhakti. There was some Gyan in it, some kind of uh, Advaitin type of leanings, but very strong bhakti leanings. Our acharyas have determined that given the circumstances, he wrote a commentary amidst Gyanis, and in doing so, offered some bait to them in the commentary that would draw them in, in the form of the emphasis towards monism that, that's also in his commentary so that they would hear the uh, other ideas of, of bhakti. But when it came out, the uh, Dwaitans questioned the commentary because of all the, the uh, bhakti influence. And so the commentary was placed before the deity of Shiva in Kashi. What is the famous deity there? Yeah, famous deity of Shiva, anyway. And so then a mantra came out. And the mantra said, uh, Sukho Veti Vyasu Veti Raju Veti No Veti Va. Aham Vedmi Sukho Veti Raju Veti No Veti Va. I know the meaning of the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's Shiva speaking. Shukadev knows the meaning of Srimad Bhagavatam. Raj Parikshit, who heard it from Sukadev, he may know the meaning, he may not. But Sridhar Swami, by the grace of Narasimha, he knows the meaning of Srimad Bhagavatam. So everyone was amazed at this. And as I say, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu liked that commentary. In fact, when Balaba, who came in later, many years later, in the line of Sridhar Swami, told Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I've made a commentary on Srimad Bhagavatam, and it's better than Sridhar Swami's. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, I don't accept uh, a lady who doesn't honor her Swami. The way he said it. <laughs> Swami means husband, means master, and all souls are feminine. So Mahaprabhu spoke to him in this way. And he was saying, you have not accepted the commentary of Sridhar Swami. He's a previous acharya. You think you've outdone him. This is not the right mood. This is prideful. So he chastised him. Later on, he blessed him. So we should not criticize Balaba. He was a great devotee He also... Mahaprabhu blessed him to have his own sampradaya, which followed in the line of Sridhar Swami. So, at any rate, Mahaprabhu accepted the, the commentary of the Swami, of Sridhar Swami. Very much appreciated it. It's an ancient commentary. And Jiva Goswami mentions it with respect in his Satsandarbha. You may also pray, pray in the Shingadev in relation to his being the protector of Sankirtan. When we play the Murdanga, we may think this is his favorite instrument. As he told the Kazi, you know the story, when Chan Kazi had the drums broken, then that night he had a dream and the Shringa came in the dream, woke him up in the dream, standing on the chest and said, don't ever break that drum again. That's my, <laughs> that's my favorite instrument. <laughs> and the next day when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came with the whole town in Sankirtan, a torchlight, to his door to, ch to challenge him. 
for having stopped us in Kirtan. He came down and, and um, Mahaprabhu charmed him, of course. And then he said that I want to tell you something in private. Mahaprabhu said, there's nothing private between me and my devotees. We're all one. Speak up. So he did. He said, I had a dream. And in the dream, this figure came. I've never seen He was a Muslim. Not familiar with all the Hindu deities. I'd never seen this half man, half lion. And he stood on my chest and told me, don't ever break that drum again. Then he opened the door and said, see, there were scratch marks on his chest. All the devotees were amazed. They could understand that not a Hari and the Srinath had come to protect the Sankirtan, uh, to, 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 to serve in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Sankirtan, something like that. So in different ways, we may think of uh, Bhagavan Narasimha in relation to Krishna Sankirtan and so forth. In this way, it, uh, there's scope for worshipping him and not losing sight of the ideal. Our ideal is not to go to Vaikuntha, to go to Vrindavan, Rajaloka. Another question? Yes. Chanting, uh, the times when I really followed strictly the 60 rounds, uh, I can say there was times when some of the rounds were really violent. <laughs> Offenses against the Holy Name that you just do it for a number. And I never really get an answer from anybody. What is the best way that you chant when you really pay attention or just fix yourself with the number? Well, just do it, even if it's total. Um, I think you have to appreciate the fact that when we enter into the chanting, we're entering into a culture, really, in a way of life that supports the chanting. And if we incorporate into our life all of those things that will help us and, and embrace the chanting as a, as, a, as a lifestyle, if you will, then um, your chanting shouldn't be that um, violent, as you put it. Because uh, I was living in a temple and it was even there sometimes. Well, we may have to move out of the temple. That's another thing. Uh, you know, there are many buildings called temples, and, and many, many bodies that are called devotees. But what, what is really a devotee? What is really a temple? That is another thing. So, so um, we should be in a conducive environment and conducive association, and then we should be encouraged. When, with regard to chanting attentively, it is mentioned by Thakur Bhakti Vinod in his Harinam Chintamani that chanting a fixed number of rounds will help one to eventually chant attentively, making a vow, I will chant this many rounds, and doing it um, without fail, and so forth. He has suggested that will be helpful for eventually uh, controlling the mind and being able to chant attentively. So it has it is it comes with strong recommendation to chant a prescribed number of rounds. Prabhupada was uh, fond of uh, asking his disciples to chant sixteen rounds. In fact, he was quite adamant about it. 
Um, but different gurus may say different things. They have some liberty there to adjust, not only in general, but between each and every disciple. You can tell one to chant a hundred rounds, one to chant one round. So there's no real rule like that. The, 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 uh, the guru will make the determination. Bhaktivinoda Thakur used to say that you chant one round and increase from there and don't go backwards. So if you can increase, but if you decide now I'll chant four rounds of a day, don't go, don't go backwards. So, we'll go forward. so there may be different um, instructions for different devotees. And the Guru may give us an instruction and he may see that we can follow it, then he may adjust it also. Prabhupada's situation is, one thing about Prabhupada and his mission is, in some respects, his example is not to be followed in as much as it's a unique kind of a situation. If, if you're in a different situation, in spirit, of course, we follow him, but to do implement or try to do everything that Prabhupada implemented, maybe uh, we may do so at the risk of missing the point and the essence of what he was trying to accomplish by his different standards and so forth. I, what I mean by that is that Prabhupada had a big, big movement, for example. Huge movement and so many disciples. And like I was speaking with you yesterday morning, he was like the grandfather and aged everybody. And there was a cultural difference and language difference and physical distance. He wasn't around very often, most of his disciples and so forth. And in a more classic situation, the Guru will have a smaller number of disciples and be closer with them. And it may probably give names to people and couldn't remember their names. Say, How could you remember 10,000 names that you'd given and when and where and, uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, some of the standards that Prabhupada established in general and the ways in which he dealt with things were relative to the situation that he was confronted with. And if our situation is very different, then certainly we have liberty and license and should take it. And we're obliged to, in fact, to uh, adjust according to the circumstances. So let's say, with regard to this principle of chanting 16 rounds, for example, if some disciples could have come to Prabhupada and said, Prabhupada, I, when I chant 16 rounds, I just find that I go you know, mad. I become angry because I just can't chant that many. And... and and I get too frustrated and I just can't pay attention that long. It's just not possible for me. And so I ended up becoming angry. Let's just say, for example, someone said like that. Then probably would say, can you chant the last rounds? Or can you chant eight? Yeah, I can do eight. That's great. And he would say, Surely he would do that. He made adjustments on so many things. Like, for example, he was very strong. No, no sex outside of marriage or outside of procreation, right? That was one of his principles, he'd push on that. I know one of his disciples came to him and said that this was giving him a problem. He said, well, then don't worry about it. He was married. So, Because there are instances, rare as they are, where Prabhupada made such exceptions, we can understand 
that were his mission smaller and more intimate, there's likely possibility he would have made more such adjustments and been able to deal with each individual a little bit more in a in a uh, tailor-made way. Tailor-made, you know, you understand what I mean, right? Hmm? Um, let me give you another example. Bhaktivinodakwa writes that the disciple will come before the guru and this is, of course, as he makes a lot of advancement from hearing and chanting. And he feels in his heart, oh, I, have, I like to think of Krishna entering the forest with his friends and cows early in the morning, about 10 a.m., and Mother Yashoda is trying to keep him back. She's concerned how he can go in the forest without shoes. He says, don't worry, I can't go as a cowherder wearing shoes. Anyway, the ground is very soft. The deers, they dust the paths with their tails, and the trees bend down and, and sweep them. I can wander through the forest without any problem. Please, let me go. And the cowherds are going like this, and let's go, let's go, let's go, and the cows are mooing, and and I and, and they enter the forest for the ghostly lila. Like, what did Prabhupada, how did he pray? So, the devotee will come and he'll say, I'm reading Bhagavatam very carefully and when I come across this section I find it very attractive. And the Guru will say, does he understand all the tattva and philosophy and so many things? He sees, he's a tattvavit, he's very sound in the philosophical understanding. And now he has some sentiment also. If he has some sentiment but no philosophical understanding, then he cannot take it very seriously. But if he sees, oh, he's a tattvavit, he studied, he learned, he understands the tattva. Now some feeling is coming. Then he would have discussion with the disciple. If you like that, so tell me a little more. Now, not then he tell him, you go like this, you think like this, conceive of yourself in this way. Now, does that feel good? And the disciple say, no, I feel a little like this. Well, then, then adjust it like this. This is a high example. Guru is speaking to the disciple, and there's some adjustment and give and take and refining of his experience as the Guru is understanding it, giving him instruction how to cultivate that. And so. Now, in Prabhupada's mission, he had so many thousand disciples who was moving around the world, empowered by Nityananda Prabhu for a particular purpose. He didn't have time to do that with every disciple. Neither disciples were very advanced, for the most part, for that to be a necessity. But I bring it up as an example of for you, a high one nonetheless, of how the Guru will deal individually in a tailor-made way with each disciple, and there will be some give and take and some input from the disciple. I've sold you to chant 16 rounds, and you're coming back. I can't. In fact, they did that. In the very beginning, Prabhupada said, so, we should chant 64 rounds every day. So he told the disciples. And they came to him, and they said, Prabhupada, we can't do that. What did he say? All right, then chant 32. 
And they came and said, we can't do that either. And they said, okay, chant 16. And then they could do that. So then it became a principle. They said, okay, the Americans and the Westerners people, they can do that, 16 rounds. So then he was successful, and most of the devotees could do that, a couple hours a day, and so and so then he pushed on that, and he made it like a law, and so forth and so on. But how do they arrive at that? There was some negotiation, <laughs> and some discussion, you see. So there's, there's room for that, and we see that even in the example of Prabhupada. So, it's a bit artificial to impose some of the that which became standardized in Prabhupada's mission upon uh, to on the part of gurus to, to new devotees when their situation is much uh, much different in other words much of the determinations of Prabhupada was rel- were, were relative to the circumstances just like uh, like we were speaking the other morning, it was not very easy to get close to Prabhupada, was it? Did you ever talk to Prabhupada? Did he ever? Oh, he came after he left, right? Yeah. Well, okay. So another example. So, but there were reasons for that. There were reasons why I'm I'm a disciple of Prabhupada. Reasons why a lot of the disciples didn't talk to Prabhupada. Prabhupada didn't talk to them. He had so many of them. He didn't even speak Finnish, or Spanish, or French, and, and some of them did. And uh, and he was like grandfather, and they were like grandchildren in age, so not a lot to talk about in you know in, in common, other than Krishna consciousness. And then their understanding of Krishna consciousness was very limited, and so on and so forth. There's a thousand reasons. It's not just. The Guru is as good as God, therefore keep your distance. And uh, just whenever you see him and bowing down when he comes up the stairs and down the stairs and in between and and everything <laughs> like that. And, and you come before him and you're too nervous to talk to him. Vishram Bina Guru Like a friend. Like older friend, come to help me. When I saw Prabhupada the first time, I thought, it's like my old friend has come to collect me up. And tears I could understand. Oh, he's come to collect me. Dear, dear most friend. That's how I felt. So, now I'm, if, if I become a guru and I have 15 disciples, and, and, but I, I, never, I never allow them to get close or talk to me, and I'm always up the stairs and down the stairs and... and Always expecting your bowing down every way I turn and uh, Om Jai and everywhere. And we were doing like that for Prabhupada in many respects, but again, there were reasons for it that were be- besides his spiritual advancement and so forth, just relative circumstances. So to impose that at the present time in different circumstances becomes very odd <laughs> and artificial and. Um, Especially when the other, the different circumstances lend to uh, some, some, some greater intimacy, and for the guru the opportunity to, to make a more tailor-made package for the disciple. Uh, in Hari Bhakti Vilas, there's a statement 
a sudra should have a sudra guru. A brahman should have a brahman guru. A vaishya should have a vaishya guru. So, the reason for these kind of statements is that, first of all, you should have a qualified guru. But if if you're Finnish and there's a qualified Finnish guru, that's a good fit. If you're Finnish and there's no qualified Finnish guru, then get one wherever you can. You won't take an unqualified Finnish guru because he's Finnish. But if he's qualified and Finnish, then that may be a double help. The, the primary and absolute consideration that he's very qualified. The secondary consideration is well, if there are other things that allow me to become closer and that he can understand my psychology and speak my language, then he'll be able to, to help me that much more more easily. Do you follow? So those statements in Hari Bhakti Vilas are relative statements in consideration of the absolute, which is a given, the guru must be qualified, highly qualified person. Do you follow? So what this means is that um, ideally uh, we should have a close relationship with our guru if he knows uh, he knows our psychology, like we are all Western people anyway. So we have some different psych- modern people, contemporary people. So we think about things differently than somebody who's you know, uh, and we're all younger. I mean, I'm old enough to be your father, most of you, not your grandfather, or maybe your older brother, I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, we're, we're naturally closer on account of these things automatically than someone who's 70 years old coming from India and, and so on. So. It's a better fit in, in, in some respects. You follow me? And it lends to the kind of kind of respectful intimacy that will be really conducive. I mean, the Prophet was an extremely qualified guru. There's no doubt about that. But could, everybody couldn't take fully advantage of him either. Everybody could sit with him and ask so many questions and talk about so many things and. So there was a downside to that, also. And now we see so many of them need help. Some things to think about. So, with regard to chanting, then it's good to chant a fixed number of rounds, but not if it's it it's it's it becomes counterproductive. And then you should approach the the. the, the uh, your guru would ask and get some advice, and, and he was what is your circumstance? Why are you feeling like that? Why is that happening to you? Make some adjustment. Is that good? What else? Yes. Uh, many of us in absolute truth press that we were brought up in Eastland, we still carry some of the. Me too. Yeah. So I'm still trying to get over it. Yeah. <laughs> Like this, as you know, this very strict chain of command, almost military, military style. Mm-hmm. And when we then started working with Absolute Fruit Press, we definitely didn't get any positive feedback. We were like getting feedback that 
this is all just for your own name, fame, and glory. These are genuine quotes. So, from his con leadership. Leaders and, and there was like, this was the general like feeling towards whatever we did. And I knew we would be very very simplified. I was wondering how, how do we know that what we're doing has some value? Well, for you, it's not hard. You can ask me. Yeah, yeah, right. but no, no, I know, no, I can ask you. Right. But, but let's, let's say we have someone who's interested in Christian culture who tries to like express the feelings in, in his or her own way without having a guru. Uh huh. Um, well, I think that when you did that originally, you approached someone who was um, at least officially in the position of a guru and asked an opinion, right? Uh, no, actually, uh, well, Your first I comic. Spoke, I, spoke with the, like, uh, I spoke with the former temple president who I had some regard for, who was like. But didn't you send your first comic to Harikesh? Uh, I, I sent it to him after I d did it, and the feedback wasn't good. It wasn't that good. Right. Yeah. So I think you anyway. You did the right thing. In other words, you you, you had some inspiration because you were in, enthused about the Krishna consciousness, and you have a profession, and so you try to bring the two together, and and um, and then you 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 approached someone who was um, purportedly of of spiritual um, importance and stature and tried to get some feedback from him. I think you did the right thing. And that, that's, that's how people should be encouraged in that situation to proceed. Unfortunately, if the person you approach is not very qualified spiritually but has been um, posing as such, then the you get, you get uh, perhaps the kind of reaction that, that you got. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, to some extent, I, I still have to think about it, but I might come back and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're free to do so. You know, I think about your the Absolute Truth Press and all, and I, I, I think about it, thought, I've thought about it quite a bit since coming here, and... and um, you know, in a way, it's, um, I mean, it's good, it's good. I, I guess what I thought about was the magazine that you showed me that you do for the temple. You designed it? He designed it, and I'm doing the layout. And then Brigu writes articles, and other people also. Yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about it. And it's not appreciated much by the temple. No, uh, that, that's at least... I didn't think they appreciate it as some, some kind of promotional material that they can use, but not the magazine as such. But they appreciate the fact that they can tell people that we have a magazine. But well, I don't think that's what ever really. No, no, that's... Uh, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. that's what I'm saying, but he likes to go to people and tell that we also produce a magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think... He, that's what I said. He appreciates it. He appreciates it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, um, I would like to lose, use your propensities to, to uh, spread Krishna consciousness. If I was to get more involved here in Finland, then I, I would be very um, excited to um, have the Absolute Truth Press uh, at uh, my disposal. <laughs> I would ha- have a lot of ideas and and um, I would think it was a great potential uh, um, you know, vehicle for doing so many things. It would hardly be on the periphery of of what I would do here. I, I would, I would, I'd take that magazine and and uh, become one of the editors of it <laughs> and see and see to its circulation and start another mission and, and uh, give a whole different presentation of Krishna consciousness. I think that the, it's it would be uh, it would be well received here and it would be refreshing for the devotees who were involved in it. That's my opinion. And I'm thinking about that, so you might want to think about it also. I mean, I don't I don't want to I really don't want to compete with ISKCON or anything, but I mean I have some enthusiasm for spreading Krishna consciousness and if uh, what can I do? I'm not gonna contain it for their sake because so I mean I've had a nice time coming here I met some nice people and I'd like to come more often and and um, and I think they will see that as a, as a problem but it's only a problem as much as uh, they, they don't have a dynamic idea of Krishna consciousness I mean I have no problem if I'm preaching to people and somebody wants to go there and join them I'll sh- I'll give them directions that's if that's what they want to do fine but they should have a mutual kind of regard for, for the faith of others if it should uh, show itself in relation to someone like me. Then we can, we are all in the same business here, starting to help people go back to God. There's no other purpose in mind here. You know, and we don't have to worry about maintenance. It's not, Krishna will maintain us at some level. If he doesn't give us a big temple or whatever, that's all right. We have our roof over our head. We can <laughs> we provide some, some prasadam. That's we can get together here in a garage or whatever. You know, the spirit is of being enthused to, to, to practice and spread Krishna consciousness is sustaining in and of itself. I was living out of Darian in a tent, you know. We were taking, we had no water. And from the well, we had to go and bring water from 10 miles away every, every day to take a bath. And in the winter, hanging from the shower from a tree and so forth. We wanted to practice Krishna consciousness there. And so and gradually people come support us and now we have some buildings and so forth. So anyway, I would really like, I, I really feel that um, your efforts in publishing to spread Krishna consciousness could be much more fruitful. And I don't mean uh, what you're already doing is good, but uh, if you could do you could do more if it was and if it was directed and uh, I mean to have a magazine is is a, such a valuable thing. It's it's so uh, 
such as you can comment on so many things in society and teach philosophy and it's very valuable, very powerful instrument. Anyway, I've got to talk to Brigu a little bit. Also. I mean, it's hard for me to come to a place like this and meet so many nice people and not think of well, what we could do here as, uh, for a preaching mission. And I see, that, well, the, the other mission is, is some people are not finding it satisfactory. So I don't need to fault the other mission, but that's just a fact. There's some other people who people can't quite identify with Krishna consciousness in that package, so there should be another package. I mean, that's just marketing principle. So, what else? Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, connecting to this, I was uh, for a long time had, had this feeling that there's so competing groups in the Vaishnava community as a whole. But then I get the feeling we are so few considering mm-hmm. our global scene and uh, I get this really feeling that can't we just come along together and join the forces? And do you think that is realistic? I think about like the World Vaishnava Association and uh, that kind of organization. Do you think they have some input on this? The problem is that in all the different missions, then there are so many. There are going to be always some fanatics, and they tend to speak louder than others, and and then they become predominant. I don't allow that in my mission. So um, we don't have that that problem, but others don't seem as concerned about it. As long as somebody's praising and contributing there, then they, they feel happy with that, even if the praise here ends up being a... a um, Criticism when you turn the other way. You follow me? Uh, I don't know. What that, so. I don't know. I can't. I've been in this for a while. I know everybody who's involved. You know, for the most part. I mean, the different missions and leaders and so forth and so on. I, 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 I think it's a little bit utopian to think that there. I mean, why the people at the temple here don't like me or, you know. Who, I can't get into it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and uh, there's nothing I could say to change their opinion. I mean, I know why. It really has nothing to do with me personally. It's the way they're un- their understanding of Krishna consciousness. So, but people are moving according to their faith. What can we do? The realization. They're also coming in touch with Krishna consciousness. They've got some realization and they're moving according to the realization. If offenses are made in the course of that, that's problematic. That's that's a shame. We should not do the same thing. We should not make make a mistake if we see that others making it. We should try to set an example that others will be inspired. So if, if we are, if we are to do something here, for example, any any preaching, we should make it our principle that we set a good example. Let people be attracted by our example and common sense. Don't offend anyone. Maybe that's the best thing we can do. Others will be inspired. What else? Yes. Well, I've seen the talk about 
was just wondering how this like, really hard music affects my consciousness. You're in a band, you think? Yeah. I don't know, I never heard it, so maybe so. <laughs> well, you know, I've been around too, I've heard a lot of music. <laughs> we used to play loud music too. But I know it's a little different, I think, but... Uh, um, you're wondering how it affects your consciousness. You have to be the judge of that, I think. You have to be the judge, and you have to think, is this helping my Krishna consciousness or not? And if, it, if it's really not, then, then it's clear what, what, what you should do. You play in a band? Mm. Is it successful? Mm, it's kind of like an underground band. So it doesn't matter, right? Mm. You know, you're not trying to be commercially viable. No. You're, you're just trying to express yourself. Through music and and um, I imagine a lot of that uh, expression is what anti-corporate or something like anti-establishment kind of feeling. Right. Well, um, you know, um, Krishna consciousness is anti-establishment in a lot of ways. So. Probably a good part of the kind of philosophy, if you will, of your of your music is is something that also in a kind of pushes you in the direction of Krishna consciousness. And as much as Krishna consciousness is also revolutionary and and so forth, so um, so otherwise, yeah, you have to be the judge how it affects you. And I doubt it's something you'll continue for the rest of your life. I'm just being candid with you. So it's probably a phase that you probably... I mean, you, you, what I'm saying is that it's kind of, kind of the, some of the philosophical sensibilities may stay with you and may be refined in as much as, let's say, for example, Krishna consciousness is, is revolutionary and, and so on. So you may be able to refine your sense of anarchism or whatever and or being being um, um, non-conforming and so forth Krishna consciousness is about non, non not conforming with material nature hmm. so you, you may be able to refine your sense of that and take that with you your taste particular taste for music seriously than you have been and you spoke with me I've encouraged you you want me to guide you so I appreciate your question but be honest with yourself Krishna consciousness is important so if you find that your music and, and all is a dis distraction at some point then uh, retire it if it's not at this point then it's, it's not a problem Yes. Um, I was. I've also been wondering about music like hardcore and punk music because there used to be these bands like One Night and Shelter with directly spiritual lyrics, and I think that Thomas Band also has some kind of spiritual implications in the lyrics, as at least for me because I know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. So. So somehow the 
topics are sattvic, but the places where the music is played is definitely promising. <laughs> people are going to be drunk and uh, there's hmm. going to be like fighting and you know. So sometimes people have told me that if you're singing about Krishna, it's it's no difference where you there's no difference where you are and and if the people are drunk and so on, but how do you feel about that? Does it immediately make the whole uh, turn the whole show into a sattvic thing if they're according to Krishna conscious thing if they're singing about Krishna? No, I think it depends to some extent on the level of the devotee's advancement, who's participating in the band the extent to which the devotee is attracted to Krishna consciousness as opposed to being attracted to the scene itself. And so there, you know, there's a lot of variables. And I think that uh, in most of the bands like these, there's there's a pretty strong attraction to the environment on the part of the devotees, more so than to Krishna consciousness. And I haven't been to any, so I don't know, but I just kind of suspect that. And um, in if the Krishna consciousness, you know, takes the better side or becomes more influential, then I think they would probably move out of that type of um, setting and find that there were. If my interest is in spreading Krishna consciousness, there may be other ways that don't. Uh, necessitate being in such an, an, an environment where I can sing or talk or write or whatever and it will be that much more uh, well received than by, you know, trying to influence drunken fighting, you know, people who are whatever, you know, intoxicated and, and so forth. Do you follow? Yeah. So... It's it's hard to make a comment on these kind of things because there's so many uh, extenuating circumstances and so much relativity involved. There were the two bands that you mentioned. I've heard of, and I I met one of the leaders of the, one of those bands. Who, who was it? He's uh, Rasaraj. Oh, I met him. Uh-huh. I met another one once too. Ragunath. Who? Ragunath. Yeah, he came to see me once many back in the eighties. And, um, and there was another one named Braja Kishore. Yeah, he wrote to me a number of times and so forth. And I'd be curious to know what they're doing now. Uh, Raghunan wrote to me just some time ago. Apparently he's living in the Los Angeles community. And he has a wife there now who from a previous I sent him our newest products I'm still awaiting that they arrive there and hear what he thought but mm-hmm. apparently he is somewhat happy now he had some harder stages but now, now he's living there teaching yoga I think mm. and living somewhat of a balanced life if I understood correctly his I have to say uh, in their favor too that there may have been ex- other extenuating circumstances to, that may have led to their being um, 
out of balance. Uh, ISKCON, they were all members of ISKCON, and ISKCON's had a lot of problems, especially with spiritual leadership. So they may have had spiritual leaders who were, who were, proved themselves to be less than qualified, and that certainly would, can take someone off balance, right? So, but anyway, um, they were kind of leaders in the field of uh, underground music and Krishna consciousness. Certainly they influenced a lot of people. Many of you would seem to have been influenced by them. So, must be some good to that. But I think, as I say, that um, in time, Krishna consciousness will uh, would take over and you will find that there may be other ways to express your interest in Krishna consciousness that leads you to an environment that's more conducive and people who are more interested in listening. Are you uh, attending the concerts of... of um, Toma. Toma, sometimes? Yes, sometimes. I'm not drinking, though. Yeah. <laughs> Just listening to the, to the music. To the, Mm-hmm. So what else? Yeah. Uh, yesterday we were talking about Anashram, uh, and someone was asking the question: uh, Is it really that Prabhupada said that? You know, sometimes we misunderstand what Prabhupada was saying. And I was reading in Sangha some article you wrote. How Prabhupada came with this culture, but how he adjusted with our culture. And mm-hmm. Sometimes I was just printing some pages and sending to some friends that some topic we were concerned about. Not so long ago, I, I had a friend in France, and she was expressing. Uh, I don't know how to say. Uh, I don't find the right word. She was a little bit upset. It's another word than upset now. I don't find the right word. With Prabhupada. Uh, about the Guru Kul. Uh, I would have liked to be able to like present her a view, you know, like like we, like uh, sometimes, you know, it's not that I was upset, but I could not understand. Why Prabhupada talked like that about women? Hmm? Mm-hmm. When I read your article, uh, uh, I was relieved. Hmm? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not that she was upset, but something, you know. Mm-hmm. Prabhupada uh, organized the system of Gurukul. And as we know, just the fact that the children were separated from their family in, in a young age, and it just doesn't work, if, even if even if we don't consider there was abuse and things like that, just the fact. Mm-hmm. Okay, you are in Europe and you go to America and that Guru Kul and you are, you are not with your family anymore and you yeah. have very young children. Mm-hmm. This part is it. Well, let me say a few words now. Uh, uh, one thing is that uh, in India, there are ancient systems of Guru Kula. And Indian culture is very different than Western culture also with regard to children. 
because in Indian culture it's, it would be common to have many children in a family, just like in the Western countries it used to be common for Catholics to have a lot of children because Catholics have a different outlook about contraception. And um, so Catholic families would generally be larger than Protestant families. Um, so in, in, in India, and, and of course, besides that, in India, contraception has, in ancient times, wasn't available at all. So anyway, they had tend to have larger families. And the families also often are in a village type of setting, which was the was and still is the vast majority of India as a village setting. Families cooperate in child rearing in ways that are uncommon in the Western world. Just like the idea that that someone would be the mother for someone else's children was very very common. We find that even in Krishna Leela that the nurse came, Putana, to give her breast milk to Krishna. So this is very common. Bhaktivinoda Thakur, I think, was, was raised by, his mother gave him a way to be raised by another part of the, another relative or something like that. Just had too many kids. And so there was this kind of a, it was a very different social uh, dynamic and family dynamic than we have in the Western world, extremely different. And the Gurukul system was, was, was part of the culture of India, not widely, but amongst Acharya families. And, uh, for example, the Madhvas and Ramanujas, they have these very uh, well-established, and others, other Sampradayas also, uh, Gurukul systems where a child will be picked out from the family to be trained as a sannyasi and put in the Gurukul. And, and uh, you've got ten sons, and you, you pick one of them for that, you know, and send somewhere else to learn something. And there was a lot of like real pragmatism in 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 raising a family that's very different from how Western society looks at raising children. And it was more common that one or two children might die. Um, might die at birth or die at a young age, and so there's a whole different way of thinking about your kids in Indian culture, especially in ancient times. And um, and 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 as I say, there were well-established and still are Gurukul systems in India that work very well. And so I believe that Prabhupada thought, let's have a Gurukul system. I've got disciples; they're going to have children. And we'll do it just like these other established um, acharya kind of sampradayas, and and uh, Prabhupada had this kind of like idea of breeding breeding Vaishnavas and Vaishnavis and uh, training them in school and so forth. And it just didn't work out in terms of Western sensibilities. The devotees didn't have the sense. Because the whole guru experience was something new to them as well, to bring up to Prabhupada how the Western society looked at it, or they just thought, well, our guru wants it, and we should do it. They, 
they had a, it was a new phenomenon for them. They didn't ever think to advise Prabhupada for the most part. Prabhupada knew everything. How can we advise him? But Prabhupada wrote to Sridhar Marsh once and said, my only problem is I have no one I can talk with. What he meant was I have no one to consult with. These people aren't giving me kind of feedback. Really, I need, they're like children. And um, so he felt some some loss for that. So at any rate, the students, his disciples, just tried to do what he wanted and and um, they didn't do such a good job of it. And meanwhile, he was traveling around the world and very affectionate to all the children. All the children seemed to, whenever he met them, you know, he was just extremely affectionate to them in, an, in, an, in a natural way. Some of the parents, on the other hand, became cold to the to the children with their take on Krishna consciousness and what it meant and and, and so forth. Um, and so it it became uh, what it, whatever it was. Um, I think that the um, with the proper input and whatnot, it could have been. Um, uh, Adjusted in such a way that it wouldn't have been as traumatic in the long run for some of the children. I don't know. In ISKCON today, they have Gurukul still, and I think they look at it a little bit differently than they did because they maybe they've learned from some of their mistakes. And so, in brief, at any rate, that's uh, um, some of my thoughts on it. Does that help at all? Yes. Can, can you tell me something about Gaur Gadadhar? Gaur Gadadhar? Yes, what is the relationship? I don't know anything. Well, uh, let's save that for another talk. Okay? Okay. That's a, that's a big talk, so. What time is it now? Uh, it's time to stop. Prabhupada ki, Sathya 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 Sath